0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, August the 3rd, 2022. I have some bad news for some of you so bad it might force you to go out and have a drink alcohol is not supposed to be very good for us we kind of know this although most of us i think try to ignore it Uh, news came out last month uh, it's particularly supposed to not be good for people under 40 who i guess probably drink more than those over 40 carries health risks according to all the headlines Big headline in Newsweek from last month, uh, young people's health at risk from excessive drinking. It doesn't mean just drinking, but excessive drinking. I'm not entirely sure what excessive drinking means. Uh, the academic paper suggests that um, alcohol, this is from 2020, the academic paper suggests that alcohol use accounted for 1.78 million deaths in 2020. Uh, And this isn't the first piece of research. There was something from um, 2018 suggesting that uh, globally, alcohol was the seventh leading risk factor for deaths in 2016. So uh, I'm sure COVID has changed all that. But certainly alcohol is increasingly becoming one of the medicinal no-nos, including alcohol, of course, uh, uh, sorry, including tobacco. It's increasingly becoming like tobacco this wasn't always the case as my guest today camper english will explain Uh, he has a new book out doctors and distillers the remarkable medicinal history of beer wine spirits and cocktails surprise surprise it's out in the uk as well under a different title the perfect tonic um And Camper is joining us from San Francisco, from the Mechanics Library downtown in San Francisco. Uh, Camper, welcome. Uh, Times change, don't they? Once upon a time, we thought alcohol was good for us, and now we think it's bad for us. Or is that an oversimplification? Uh, No, I think
1: that's accurate. But we also tend to think that medicine is always good for us, which too much of that uh, can be quite bad as well.
0: When, uh, so uh, tell me, me a little call? bit about this book. It's an interesting book, um, which suggests that, particularly um, in the early modern period, uh, beer, wine, spirits, and cocktails were viewed as being quite good for us. What kind of research did you do for the book? I hope you didn't drink too much, uh, Cam. <laughs> Only for research purposes, of course. Uh, I
1: did a lot of research into... Um, First, I I started with all my drink books and looked back into any medicinal history. This all had started with exploration of the gin and tonic and the long history of malaria and its cures.
0: Um, And gin and tonic being the most (laughs) quintessential of of English drinks, I think. And perhaps no coincidence that it's very much tied up in the British colonial history of India. We did a show with William Dalrymple... uh, the anarchy on the, the British looting of India and uh, the gin and tonic has an interesting uh, footnote perhaps to that, doesn't it, Camp? Yes, I thought because medicine is so much
1: better documented than cocktails. I thought I was going to find uh, the earliest first reference to the gin and tonic in the books on the history of malaria and in India. And that didn't end up being the case, but I learned so much about the history of medicine and at every stage, alcohol is involved in the practice of medicine up until relatively modern times.
0: What, um, what? Did people think differently about alcohol, particularly in terms of its impact on our mood historically? I mean, after all, everybody knows that uh, alcohol changes our mood, often for the better, sometimes for the worse, I guess. But did people, doctors, scientists take it for granted that it changed our bodies too?
1: Well, before distillation um, to make distilled spirits, uh, the, the importance of alcohol was largely that it was wet and safer to drink than water. And sure, people commented on its intoxicating properties, but when wine was distilled into what became known as Eau de Vie, the water of life, uh, they really commented on, that's that's when we see a lot of comments on this stuff. It gives you energy. It will allow you to say your last words on your deathbed. It will... Um, make you bold to speak for shy people, things like that. We saw real clear what alcohol does to your mood um, in in that era. And that's we're looking in the 1300s or so.
0: Yeah, I was always struck. I've read this in history books that in London, in the medieval period, for example, people drank beer over water because it was safer. Um, And that always seemed almost comic to me. But it wasn't for medieval Londoners, was it? Oh, for sure. Um, And throughout most places in the world, throughout
1: much of history, beer was uh, consumed for hydration, um, for people working uh, labor jobs, Uh, people who built a pyramid were served beer for their beverage. And um, there are a lot of fun quotes throughout history of people being like, oh, that person is so poor that they have to drink water um, because that was only for the poorest people who couldn't afford beer or in some cases they didn't have they were unmarried and didn't have a woman to produce beer in the house and they would say that that poor bachelor he has to drink water
0: what about the impact uh, on, on children in particular my understanding is that kids were and again the idea of childhood perhaps was a little different in the medieval period But the children were served up beer with adults, unthinkingly. Was anyone concerned about its impact on their mood? And when people talk about beer in Chaucer's time or in in the Middle Ages in Europe, was it the same drink that we talk about today as beer? Well,
1: it was a very low ABV. ABV beer, a small beer it was usually called. And so it wasn't, its purpose wasn't to intoxicate. It was a a water preparation method more than anything else um, safe to drink. It was the the only thing that people would drink in a lot of parts of the world. So uh, I haven't read anything. I didn't look into that issue specifically, but I haven't read anything where uh, there were warnings against serving too much beer to children
0: You mentioned um, distillation, Camper. I know this is a central piece in your narrative. You and I are both in San Francisco. I looked up distilleries in San Francisco. Many were uh, named. Um, Distillation is, according to Wikipedia at least, the process of separating the components or substances from a liquid mixture by using selective boiling and condensation. Why is distillation so key in the history of alcohol, particularly in terms of, it's medicinal uses.
1: Well, it's, uh, there's a really fascinating history of alchemy, and uh, one of the main tools of alchemy was the still. Before wine was distilled, um, a lot of other things were, uh, people would try putting anything into the still to do some mineralogy experience uh, experiments. There was lots of attempts at purification of minerals and natural substances to try to make pure materials. Distillation um, was used to make medicines basically as a preservative method. So we take roses, put them in water, distill them, and we get rose water, which now uh, is a pure liquid and it can be used for its supposed medicinal properties and it's preserved. Uh, Out of season when the roses have long died, you could still drink rose water all year round. So distillation was a purification method to um, save the active properties of medicinal botanicals. And so everything was put into the still at one time to try to extract its medicinal qualities. And that includes things like eggs and hair and human matter and blood. And these were all to try to make medicines. So when distillation technology got good enough that wine was put into the still and the alcohol was concentrated from wine, there were uh, the al- medical alchemists were like, "Eureka! We found it. Finally, we, ha- we have the medicine that's superior to all other medicines we've ever produced." And that's what we know today is brandy, O to V, because it's uh, obviously it has an, an impact. If we think of taking a shot of tequila, and if you had only ever had beer previously, that's quite a big uh, impact on on the human body. So distilled spirits were created in the process of trying to make medicines and I think that's something we forget about today we might think that alcohol could be useful in the practice of medicine like oh we created this thing to drink and you can use it for medicine but that's not the case uh that was a created as a medicine that turns out is fun to drink
0: was there a particular illness that um triggered the use of medicine I know that uh, the history of malaria um, is an important piece in your narrative in your book.
1: All all illnesses were treated with alcoholic beverages uh, for the most part. The the history of medicine is there was a lot of confusion about human anatomy and the circulation system, and it led to the four humor theory of medicine, um, which is. Complete nonsense. And uh, the treatments for that were either getting rid of different um, bodily fluids, so blood, black bile, yellow bile, um, and uh, through purging and sweating and these methods, or an additive method of adding different foods or beverages to try to balance the humors within the body. If you were putting anything wet into your body, it was with alcohol and alcoholic beverages, uh, beer or wine. And that could be just drinking wine, red wine that was thick to make more blood, or it could be you're trying to really drink wormwood, but it's extremely bitter. And so you'd put it in wine, maybe with some honey to sweeten it. So all cures really had alcohol associated with them. In the case of the cinchona tree bark to treat uh, malaria, we get quinine from the cinchona tree bark still today. That's an extremely bitter, dry bark (laughs) material, and you can't really swallow a a spoonful of bark and uh, expect to not choke. So it was taken in a number of different beverages over the years, beer, wine, sherry, whiskey. Uh, It ends up in tonic water much later on because mineral water itself, carbonated mineral water, was thought to be healthy and medicinal um, in the same way that beer and wine were. And so we can track really closely the alcohol use in the application of cinchona tree bark to prevent and cure malaria. So that's just one example of hundreds uh, in the book, but there were always liquids involved in order to take our herbal medicines, the only medicines available in early days. And those liquids were alcoholic.
0: A lot of your narrative is, is bound up in the history of European colonization of the rest of the world. Of course, we're fortunately over that chapter. Given that the news today on alcohol is, is less good, it's seen as being bad for us, as causing death. Is the change scientific or is the change in us, Camper? There,
1: the, the recent studies that, that come out, you know, everyone has an agenda one way or another. There are some studies that refute the famous Lancet studies. But going back to the days um, and during United States prohibition, actually, uh, there was a study showing that people who consume a small amount of alcohol regularly tend to live longer than people who do not. And as far as I know, that is still true. So these studies are about health of alcohol while drinking. Uh, And separately, longevity studies are about people who drink a little bit. So it's not about getting drunk and falling down and hurting yourself, but do people who drink live longer than people who do not drink? That uh, seems to be true. And the logic to that is that people who consume alcohol tend to be more social. They tend to have uh, friend groups. They tend to be married. And these long lasting relationships correspond with a longer lifespan. So in some ways, alcohol, over time, <laughs> people who, who don't uh, abstain can um, live longer lives, which is no reason to start drinking if you do not, absolutely.
0: Is that why you're so cheerful, Camper? You were uh, ranked number 87 on uh, uh, professional on the, the bar. The, the industry bar world's most influential figures in 2021. How did you get into this business? What's your fascination with alcohol? Did you come in as a drinker, as an enthusiast for work?
1: I did. My uh, undergraduate degree was in physics and, and I did um, some medical research early on, switched to computer science and I'd always uh, enjoyed nightlife and going out and having some drinks and, uh, around 2001 um, I was unemployed and I started writing um, nightclub reviews at the time. Uh, I saw the cocktail Renaissance sort of forming and these better drinks and rediscovery of old drinks. And I thought that was very interesting. So I I, I like to nerd out on pretty much everything. So I started getting really into that. Uh, and then eventually was able to apply my history in science and medicine and tag that along with a study of alcohol and we we eventually end up with doctors and distillers.
0: You have a particular interest in cocktails. You write about safe cocktails. I have a particular interest in beer, a big fan of the Russian River Brewery. And of course, the famous Northern California's most famous beer, Pliny the Elder and Younger. Um, What's your take on the renaissance of craft beer? In terms of the narrative in your book, is there any medicinal upside or downside to drinking <laughs> beer versus cocktails or wine? Um,
1: not that I've I have explored. I didn't spend a lot of time talking about recent history. Um, and I don't, there are some beers now that have supposedly um, hydrating, they have. Um, vitamins essentially added to the beer. And I don't really concern myself with that. I think if you're drinking alcohol, you're drinking for pleasure. You're, you're never going to drink yourself healthy with alcohol. And that's a flawed concept. <laughs> However, the history of hops in beer, these these are particularly hoppy beers, I think, that, that you enjoy. Given the just the breweries, um, I found interesting is the hops was often employed medicinally. It's antimicrobial. It helps beer last longer, and that caused a lot of changes. Now the beer could last longer. It could be more industrialized. Uh, it wasn't just something made in the home, but it could be made in larger quantities and sold,
0: um, freeing up some time for people in the household, perhaps. Camper, you mentioned prohibition, um, the, uh, the failed policy of the U.S. government, or it seems a failed policy now mocked mercilessly by most historians and thinkers. Did it have any health upside? Does, has any have any historians done any research on the impact of the broader American population of, of prohibition? It did.
1: Ultimately, um, going into prohibition, Americans drank a lot because they just drank as the thing that was wet was, was liquor uh, going into prohibition and people drank less after prohibition. So a reduction in sort of daily consumption on behalf of the average person that's definitely has health upsides during prohibition. There were many, many health downsides because illegal alcohol people was uh, unsafe. People would take denatured alcohol and try to redistill it to renature it, essentially, or they would make fake whiskey with additives to it or produce it in unsafe uh, methods with lead in the still um, distilling and radiate car radiators and, and things like that. Um, So there are a lot of downsides during prohibition for people who continue to consume alcohol but but overall it did reduce drinking the the quantity of alcohol consumed in america
0: do you think it might reappear at least the argument for prohibition given the amount of the amount that people drink and given this worrying news coming out from researchers
1: well i i sure hope it doesn't i think that um it's drinking is an option. Younger people are drinking less than ever. They're choosing uh, not to consume alcohol or to consume cannabis products as, yeah. uh, a, a, in, in their opinion, a healthier alternative to it. And I, I think that's great. Alcohol is really problematic for a lot of people. And as a person in the industry, you're constantly monitoring and measuring and um, trying to have an awareness of how much alcohol. I'm consuming and, and others in the industry do, do the same. So we, we realize we're dealing with something that can, that can go awry, uh, might have great pleasure, um, much as someone who writes about food must be careful that they don't consume too much of it or too much of the wrong type, similar to alcohol. We want to, uh, enjoy it as an art form without excessive consumption.
0: It'd be interesting to see how self-driving cars will actually impact on the alcohol industry given um, the drinking rather understandably stringent um, drink and drive rules around the world. Uh, You mentioned cannabis. Do you see the history of cannabis as a parallel to alcohol, especially its legalization and the controversies over its impact on our bodies?
1: Um, honestly, I don't know enough uh, about it uh, historically and in that context to, to have a smart opinion on it.
0: You mentioned Brandy um, uh, Camp, uh, the The politician, uh, cultural figure most associated with Brandy is Winston Churchill. Done lots of shows on him, some quite revisionist. But Churchill is one of the last public figures to really... Build his brand, if that's the right way of putting it, around alcohol. Why don't people do that anymore? Why don't we have politicians who appear in public with a big glass of brandy? <laughs> well, I,
1: it's it's no longer really publicly access, uh, acceptable to have your your brand be being intoxicated. Which, if, if you're talking about the consumption of alcohol, um, we're usually uh, considering the impacts, the effects of that alcohol as well, and particularly for a politician. We don't want a drunk president making decisions and having the nuclear codes we want. Well, so, yeah, I
0: mean, uh, Donald Trump was famously a teetotaler. I'm not sure if uh, being drunk would have made him any worse, would it?
1: <laughs> I, I don't know what, what could make him worse.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would have liked to see a Donald Trump drunk. I think he might. we might see the real Donald Trump. Um what about, uh, we, we, we talked about how everything changes dramatically, one of the things that occurred to me when I was thinking about this conversation, Camper, is the impact of climate change on the alcohol industry, particularly the wine industry. There are once again fires uh, north of San Francisco, where we both are. Lots of pieces about the impact of climate change on, on the wine industry. Do you expect today's environmental crisis to have an impact on the wine or beer or spirits industry? I, I'm guessing that probably less on spirits than on wine.
1: Well, they all have to start in the ground with plants somehow. So as uh, certainly we're going to be drinking Alaskan wine pretty soon uh, with, with climate change. Uh, and
0: Is that a good or a bad thing? Uh, maybe maybe
1: it'll be great. <laughs> maybe it'll be delicious. Um, it's not. It's, it's not certainly good not
0: good news for Northern California uh, or Burgundy or the traditional uh, uh, the, the traditional vineyards which have supplied our wine.
1: Nor, nor is it good news for you know the polar ice caps um, because uh, they'll be melting and our coastlines will be. Uh, Pretty pretty wet coming up soon. So it's yeah. Generally, you know, global warming is not a great thing. Uh, it'll change where crops are grown um, largely, and they can still be um, produce alcohol at the, at the end of the day. Um, I think that's a, a lesser. I'm not so much worried about the alcohol as I am worried about the people who have to live in a planet where uh, the polar ice caps have melted.
0: I've just come back from a, a Europe trip. My wife and I drank a lot of Aperol spritz. We've been very seduced by the advertising. It looks like a very healthy, glamorous, bright drink, which maybe is a contradiction in terms. In your um, in your history of alcohol, particularly in medicinal terms, was there a lot of advertising? I mean, I know the advertising industry wasn't, wasn't much of an industry in the Middle Ages, but did... The the distillers, did they advertise the product as being good for you?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, and until the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, you could advertise food and pharmaceuticals and alcohol as being healthy and curing every disease in the world that it did not. And that law was originally more of a, a false advertising law that, that kept food safer because you could no longer make up stories about it. But uh, there are several products that are on sh- uh, store shelves today that were once advertised directly medicinally, including um, like Hennessy Cognac was advertised. Brandy was thought to be a reviving Uh, Alcohol, And so if someone fainted, you would get the brandy specifically rather than other spirits and sort of had that reputation. And there are ads for uh, with nurses administering brandy uh, to patients, uh, which would not be allowed today. Certainly Uh, elixirs like uh, chartreuse, the famous liqueur made by monks in France that was actually developed as medicine and became then a table liqueur. Um, derived on that initial recipe. And so it was advertised, as were many products like Fernet Branca, for example, a bitter Italian liqueur, as being um, cures for cholera specifically. Now, alcohol in water that had the cholera, I don't know if it's a parasite, uh, in it w- would kill those over time. So any alcohol would have worked, but there were specific ads like anti choleric um, Fernet Branca. And um, and uh, chartreuse at one point I found one ad where it was recommended for um, car sickness, which uh, a real iffy proposition there. Uh, Guinness was famously had a major ad campaign from for decades uh, saying Guinness is good for you. And it was about basically um, how we think of sort of uh, Gatorade today as it's uh, hydrating and it has fortifying minerals and, and, uh, materials in it like that. And a lot of the, uh, the you mentioned Aperol, but things like Aperol, Campari, Fernet Branca, these Italian bitter uh, aperitifs, as in the case of Aperol and digestifs, things like Fernet Branca, they, um, they're from a little bit bitter to a lot bitter. And the botanicals that are in those bitter liqueurs, uh, they usually contain a range of them, wormwood, gentian, cinchona, rhubarb bark, and many other botanicals. And these bitter botanicals do stimulate uh, digestive juices in the body because our bodies recognize it as poison, like process, get it out of your system. But we use that to our advantage by having a little bit of something bitter to prepare ourselves for a meal or to help digest food after. So it's a bit of a stretch to call that medicine so much as uh, just something that makes us feel a little bit better around the processing of food. But there is a, even a medicinal history and and all of those bitter liqueurs, which were developed for meals, as well as all purpose medicines. People might take a spoonful each night of a bitter liqueur as sort of a a, a daily vitamin.
0: So I don't have your permission to treat my next Aperol spritz as an equivalent to aspirin, right?
1: Correct. But you can use it as a write off now that we've had this this business conversation.
0: (laughs) No, well, thank you. That's very good thinking. Uh, Finally, um, finally, Camper, um, tomorrow I'm doing a conversation with Isaac Saul, a prominent internet writer. He had an interesting essay in Persuasion. Misinformation is here to stay and that's okay. He makes the argument that every age has its truths which change dramatically from generation to generation. We always believe in whatever is presented today and then tomorrow everything changes. It's certainly the case with alcohol. that's has gone, as you suggest in your in your very interesting book from being um, uh, um, uh, a a medicinal uh, drink to something which is bad for us. Do you have any guesses in, say, 30 or 40 years how that might change again?
1: Hmm. Uh, uh, That's a great question. I think there'll be continued studies on uh, specific impacts for specific Uh, conditions that alcohol is believed to inflame certain types of cancers, for example, and we might have more specific information rather than just alcohol is bad without citing specific uh, conditions that it uh, it, uh, inflames. So perhaps that, I I don't think we're going to come around to alcohol is healthy medicine and you should drink more of it, um, to, to, to live longer. I think that's probably gone for good.
0: <laughs> well, Camper, you're one of my favorite writers now on drink. Uh, you're there with Dave Infante, who is another leading writer on the world of booze. He was on the show. He has a popular Substack newsletter on drink. Um, who else do you drink? Not that was a Freudian errand. Who else do you read on drink, not drink on read?
1: Well, who are I'm, the best
0: writers these days? On yeah, you know, as I said, you're you're number eighty-seven on the <laughs> uh, on the bar world uh, top hundred. So you're, I mean, all of you, you're the, certainly the first person I've, I've talked to in the top hundred. Who else? Who are good writers on on contemporary alcohol and issues associated with it?
1: Well, really, the the top historian on uh, alcohol is David Wondrich, who's the uh, editor-in-chief of the Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails, which came out within the last year. It's, it's finally as close as we have to a definitive history of, of alcohol in encyclopedia form. And uh, I've just been having fun flipping to random pages, which then lead me down little rabbit holes into other pages. Uh, but he's been doing work for for decades on the history of cocktails really specifically but now into all um spirits as well that's uh that's one of my uh the most important new books um i've also been uh i'm a huge fan of amy stewart a uh, nature writer she's written about bugs and plants and uh oh. the drunken botanist is her book about the plants that make uh alcohol that we consume and that book came out um, a decade ago, and it's still a book that everybody in the drinks industry cites as extremely useful and important on uh, the study of, of where the booze comes from. Uh, lately, I've been reading about uh, a lot about um, women in alchemy because uh, I got interested in the history of alchemy and how that led to uh, distilled medicines, and there are a couple books I've uh, picked up only in the past couple of weeks on, on women alchemists. One is called Daughters of Alchemy by uh, an author with the last name Ray. I don't know the first name offhand that, that I really uh, have enjoyed um, looking at that history and how women often distilled in the home. A lot of us know about the history of beer and that, that was uh, women's work in the home was to make the beer for the family until it became an industrialized industry. Um, but the uh, distilling was similar in larger households and to make medicines as well as alcohol, but really to make alcohol for the practice of medicine. And there is a terrific book about that in the Chesapeake uh, area of America. It's called Every Home a Distillery, and it's essentially a case study on women distilling in the home in a part of America that was about 100 years behind the technology in London but so there's a lot more writing on a time of earlier technology a fascinating uh, study that, that I've really enjoyed